Well, good morning or good evening, uh, whatever time it is that you are listening to the Sons of History podcast. I'm Dustin Bass. Okay. Feel free not to say anything. All right. Well, I'll be doing this podcast episode alone. Thank you very much. Well, you know, you're snapping kind of threw me off there, but... Uh, I yeah, snap. I snap every single time we do an episode. How is it that that is taking you by surprise? Because part of me couldn't hear it. Part of you? Like the, the ears part of you? That was the part. Who are you? I'm Alan Joaquin. <laughs> I almost... <laughs> I, I'm, <laughs> you know, you, you reminded me of the 1992 campaign when that admiral who was running as Ross Perot's running mate, running mate goes, who am I? Why am I here? To which he responded... Oh, no. <laughs> who am I? Why am I here? God, I'm mercy. Yeah. <laughs> what a great start. <laughs> Sometimes I ask myself that when we start these episodes. <laughs> of course, I don't ask the question whenever we've already started recording. Anyways, yes, I'm Dustin Bass. He's Alan Joaquin. We are the Sons of History, and we've got a great show of in store for you and we've already started off on a hot note <laughs> needless to say <laughs> identifying identifying each other thank god uh so at least we know who we are um anyways last week was our first episode um celebrating black history month as it is february and this is something we had talked about uh, months ago that we actually wanted to do remember that alan And I think one of our our primary concern, and I think we, I, I believe we addressed this uh, during the last episode, was that um, you Black History Month often only really focuses on you know four or five um, you know famous Black people um, in American history, and we want to sort of diversify from that and sort of bring out a lot of other um, Black Americans who made major contributions to this country and made it what it is today. Um, and I think we did a fantastic job last week, um, and I give uh, that credit to you, uh, by providing us with so much information on the history of blacks in the military, ranging from the American Revolution all the way up to World War II. Listeners, if you haven't listened to that uh, episode do so. Please go back, check that out. It's a, it, it is a great listen. In fact, I actually uh, went and listened to it in its entirety. Very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah I did too. It <clears throat> is, uh, there, there's so many people who have helped shape this country and made it a great country. And uh, people from all creeds, all races, all backgrounds. And many times these people are not given the credit that's due. You know, one of my favorite sayings is that we we stand on the shoulders of uh, great men and women, mm -hmm. and that is the case. And since it is Black History Month, that's why I feel it's very important we concentrate on those black men and women who have made this a great country, made this a great planet, a great civilization, yeah. to make our lives better and our lives easier. Indeed. All right, well, before we really get 
started on this episode, we will do as we always do. We will provide the listeners with book recommendations. Do you have yours prepared, Alan? I do. All right. I'm going to let you start since I went last time. Go ahead. All right. Um, for fiction. Now, this is going to be a book I have not actually read myself, but I know of it. And it's important, and it's called Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah, right. The reason why I wanted to pick this book but have not yet read it myself is because of its um, impact on our history. Mm-hmm. That, bo- that book had an impact on Abraham Lincoln as well as many other um, Whigs and abolitionists and Republicans uh, that helped form the Republican Party, the, the Whigs. And um, it kind of gave a personal viewpoint to slavery. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when Abraham Lincoln looked at the author, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and said, a lot of this is because of you. Yeah. And that was in the effort to rid ourselves of slavery, right. rid our country of slavery. So, um, you know, there are, there are many books out there that have an impact on our society. Uh, uh, the Jungle, uh, this book... Um, uh, Thomas Paine's uh, Common, uh, Common Sense. Sense. Yeah. So I, I would put I would put this book up there with Common Sense. Yeah, it was a it was a great book. I remember reading it. Left an impact on me. Um, it was in middle school that we we read that, um, and that was yeah, very powerful book. So uh, nonfiction, The Great War in Africa. 1914 to 1918 by Byron Farwell. The war in Africa was kind of looked at uh, as as a sideshow, you know, as was uh, the as was the Middle East um, war that was famously shown in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. But in the Great War in Africa, really the only movie I can think of that showed any of that would have been the African Queen. Uh, Germany had four colonies in Africa, uh, what was then called Togo land, it's now Togo, uh, Cameroon, German Southwest Africa, which is now Namibia, and German East Africa, which is Tanzania, but you also had uh, Burundi and Rwanda. They, they were all part of the uh, German East Africa. So at the beginning of World War One. The uh, Allies, who pretty much controlled the rest of Africa, decided that let's invade those uh, colonies, take them over, and then we will, you know, be in possession of them after the war is over, or we can use them as a bargaining chip. Um, and they figured it'd be an easy fight, which it wasn't. The um, the war in now, now in Cameroon, it took over a year. Uh, Togo, it took only a couple of days, about a month, I would say. Cameroon took over a year. German Southwest Africa took about a year or two. But it was German East Africa where they had a general by the name of uh, Paul von Leto Vorbeck. His idea was that if we could have a guerrilla war, that he he knew that he had no chance of defeating the Allies if they invaded German East Africa. Um, 
But he realized that if, if they do capture the country, they could launch a guerrilla war and they would have French, English, and Belgian troops tied up in that war, preventing them from fighting in Europe where everyone you know, assumed that that's where the real fight was. So um, I would say about half the book talks about what went on in German East Africa. And uh, um, uh, that general, that German general, Paul von Veto Leto Vorbeck, uh, he did not surrender his troops until about a week or two after Armistice Day, November 11, 1918. He was still fighting. And he fought until he heard about the, about the armistice. And then and only then did he surrender. A lot of people don't know about that story. That's why I recommend this book. Okay. And there was, one, there was one interesting battle where the, um, the English and the Germans were fighting. And apparently they, uh, either they would be attacked by rhinos or other animals. And one time they were attacked by a swarm of uh, bees. Killer bees? African killer bees? Well, they were Africanized bees, but no, killer bees uh, came about when Africanized bees were were breeded with um, South American honeybees. Oh. But, uh, but yeah, but these were, no, these were like very violent African bees. And, yeah, they attacked all the troops, and the troops had to stop fighting and run away. Dead, yeah. So, pretty interesting story there. Yeah, if you could just train those bees um, to attack your enemies, that's... Yeah, that'd be an easy way to... You could call it the company B. There we go. Well done. <laughs> and no need for a bugle boy. <laughs> oh, beautiful. So, tell us, oh wise one, what are your recommendations? All right, my recommendations are... You know what, I will just go ahead and admit to this. I had two nonfiction pieces down, um, so I now have a fiction and a nonfiction piece. My fiction selection is The Heart of Darkness. Now, we mentioned this a uh, few uh, episodes yeah. back. The Heart of Darkness by uh, Joseph I've read Conrad. That book. Huh? I've read that book. Yeah, it's, very, it's a very short book, um, and seemingly I, 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 I find myself recommending readers uh, that they read a lot of very short books, <laughs> so I guess they can get a lot of reading done. Anyways, The Heart of Darkness, I actually watched Apocalypse Now before I read The Heart of Darkness, and honestly, I did not know that Apocalypse Now was more or less based off of The Heart of Darkness, so as I was reading The Heart of Darkness... I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is a lot like Apocalypse Now. And then as I kept yep. reading, I go, wait a minute. This is Apocalypse Now. So yep. I was looking forward to certain things uh, that were taking going to take place in the book. Uh, I was a little more eager to um, read what was what was going to happen. happen. Uh, it's a pretty... It, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And <clears throat> it really is one of those things where... Uh, as you're reading it, you get this feeling um, from the from the narrator, uh, from the really the the primary person, the one who is telling the story. That hey, where we're going, there is no turning back. Now, he survived obviously to go back into the heart of darkness, but it's one of those things like once you go in, even if you survive, there's no going back from the things that you've seen. 
Um, so I thought that was it was I, I really enjoyed it. So I encourage I encourage you know, readers, especially people who have gonna, viewed the movie. I'll go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to mention something when you when you finish. Let me know, and I, I want to mention something. Uh, finished all together as far as with the rest of my life, and at my funeral, you're going to say something, or are you just talking about when I'm done talking about the heart of darkness? Well, unfortunately, we don't know when the first part will be. So let's go with the second one. Okay, go ahead then. All right. Francis Ford Coppola, when he was directing Apocalypse Now, he told everyone, read the book, The Heart of Darkness. Mm -hmm. Marlon Brando, who had a very important part, Kurtz, which is in the book, did not read it. Hmm. That pissed off Francis Ford Coppola. He really wanted him to read that book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay, that's it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that. And thank you for Marlon Brando for giving us a good showing, regardless uh, of the fact that you didn't read that book. All right. My, uh, my nonfiction piece is called Unforgivable Blackness. Uh, this is a book by Jeffrey Ward. And it is about Jack Johnson, the first heavyweight champ, black heavyweight champion of the world. Um, and the reason I, primarily the reason I bring this up is because he's going to be one of the ones that I talk about uh, during this show. Uh, one of my selected athletes. So, um, and speaking of athletes, that's what we're going to be talking about today um, in this episode is black athletes, black American athletes. Um and going into more detail and bringing up some that maybe you've never even heard of before. Um, but before we get into that, I would like to know, Alan, what your favorite or couple of favorite athletes are and why. Well, um, I have a couple of them that do come to mind. Um, Akeem Olajuwon. Mm-hmm. The dream. I, I, I really, really admire him. I don't want to say he's my favorite. Favorite. I mean, I've uh, I've met a couple of uh, 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 Calvin Murphy. I've met him, and he is just a a friendly, friendly, nice man. Yeah. Uh, I met him at a bank, and the first uh, the, the first black athlete, or hell, the first athlete I ever met was um, Kenny Burrow, who played for the Houston Oilers. Um, I won a uh, football, an autographed football by Kenny Burrow. Now, he was a wide receiver for the Houston Oilers back in the mid-70s. He was a double zero. So he, he will always be someone who I'll always admire. But Akeem Olajuwon, the thing I liked about him was that uh, he, he just embodied what an athlete should be, a, a good man, yeah, uh, a man that, of the community. The man gave back to the community. He... He did so much, and he was just the best center I've ever seen. Yeah, he was such a fantastic center. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I remember he was always up against Michael Jordan. He was up against uh, the Lakers of the '80s, yeah, Boston of the '80s. And right. uh, I think that had any one of those teams taken him, he would have been a he would have won more than just two championships. Yeah. Yeah, he was incredible. I love the fact that I got to grow up watching him play. 
Um, and I got to grow up in my, I think I was in sixth grade when we won our first championship, I want to say. Uh, yeah, it was, huh. Oh, man. The, the other one uh, I want to mention is Evander Holyfield. <clears throat> um, actually, two more. Evander Holyfield and George Foreman. Those were two just beautiful, beautiful men in that their hearts, their souls were fantastic. Mm-hmm. They they did not come across as having any mean bones in their body. Yeah. Uh, they they loved they loved to fight as a sport, but they upheld. Um, you know, both of them were very devout Christians, and I I don't remember ever seeing anything coming from either one of them that made me ashamed of uh, of my faith. Those two guys. They were the best athletes at what they did. Yeah. They were both heavyweight champions, and they were just just fantastic men. Yeah. And those are really good choices. Those are really good Thank choices. Thank you, sir. What about you? So I grew up a child, a product of the 80s. So whenever me and my friends and my brother would go out in the yard and, and play football, it was, you know, you always, uh, hey, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> We got the admiral question. <laughs> Who are you and what are you doing here? Um, I was always Jerry Rice. <clears throat> Jerry Rice, the receiver okay. for the San Francisco 49ers during their heyday. Oh, man, he was just my favorite. He was so good. He caught everything he was super fast. And I remember um, hearing, like, you know, I think I was late teens, early 20s. Uh, maybe it was like a documentary type thing about him where he goes, the only reason that I was so much faster than everybody else is that I was, you know, I did not want to get tackled. I was afraid of getting tackled. So I just outran everybody. Um, But I loved watching Jerry Rice. Uh, And along with uh, him on the defensive side, Ronnie Lott, that guy was an absolute monster. And the dude was like a man's man. Where And there's there's a story that during one of the games, he got his, his finger severed and... It was hanging on by the skin, and he's like, you know, just cut it off. We'll, we'll take care of it later. Bandaged up that finger and went back out and continued playing. So just and now that is folklore. I'm not. A, I have not ever looked into it to say, hey, did that really happen? But with all my heart, I go ahead and believe that. Um, so he was a great safety for the 49ers. Another great safety who played for the Steelers was Rod Woodson. And that was a guy that we always emulated and, and acted like that we were uh, whenever we were playing defense. The guy would wipe people out. Um, and he would he would cause concussions all the time. But the dude was a monster. Um, and slipping into baseball, I had two favorite baseball players, Cal Ripken Jr. Had a, well, three actually. Cal Ripken Jr., uh, just loved him, uh, the Iron Man. Uh, Craig Biggio, the Houston uh, favorite. Uh, I, I just loved the way he played, always stood in, took the, took the bean, uh, so he'd get on base. Um, but he just, he was just great. And then of course, Ricky Henderson. I love the fact that he was so fast and he would just continue to steal bases, um, had so many of his baseball cards, his and Cowerpkin juniors. And then slipping into, uh, basketball, uh, my favorite basketball player growing up was Dominique Wilkins because he could just fly. And he would just dunk the ball so hard. Um, but I remember as a kid, I had one of his basketball cards. And it's a picture of him just about to dunk the ball. And his hand is extended. And I always thought that was the coolest card. So 
then I found out that he was a really great basketball player as well. And so just as a kid, I just, I followed him um, all the time. So yeah, those were, those are my selections. Um, yeah. Favorite athletes. Yeah. That list could go on now. So, but we are far into this episode and I feel like we haven't gotten too far. Uh, so let us go ahead and begin. We've got selections on who we want to talk about as far as um, great black athletes in American history. Um, and so, Alan, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Oh, I'll start. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with a combination basketball and football player by the name of uh, Kenneth S. Washington, also known as Kenny Washington. Uh, now, he was a contemporary of Jackie Robinson. So, and everybody knows who Jackie Robinson is, so mm-hmm. that's why I wanted to pick this guy. Uh, Kenny Washington was met what many considered, possibly, for his time, the best athlete in the uh, West Coast. Um, he, he just, he broke records. And uh, he should have played. George Hallis hmm. of uh, Chicago wanted him to play for his team. But unfortunately, his team was not integrated. Uh, now, Washington did play for uh, UCLA. And, uh, you know, he, he just, the, the guy just broke record after record. And uh, he, he was considered the best, uh, he was considered the the best college player out of the West Coast, but he was never drafted. Hmm. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. The, the man was not given the opportunity. Um, now, now he, he was given, he was finally given that opportunity. It, it took a while, but, um, you know, he, he I don't know, it, 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 it kind of just bothers me the fact that you know, uh, as much as I love my nation, I do know that you know we we have had our we've had our uh, stories about some of the stuff that went on in this country, and, and it's it's not it's not a good history. Right. So we we really need to uh, you know we really need to give these guys uh, their credit. Now yeah. um, now the Cleveland Rams moved to uh, Los Angeles and. You know, that was really what kind of led to much of the, uh, the racial integration that we see today. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Thing about, here's the thing that I love about football is that, you know, you ha- it's, it's a melting pot. It's the melting pot that we have always been looking for. Yeah. You have, you have white players, you have black, pair, black players, you have Latino players. Um, you have, and, and although I can't think of any off the top of my head. I do remember Dad Wynn. Who played I was going to say, yeah, Dad Wynn for the Cowboys. So, yeah, you have yeah, a smattering yeah, of, of Asian Cowboys. players. He came out of Texas A&M. Um, uh, Vietnam, um, refugee. And, you know, when you look at these players, you don't sit there and say, oh, you know, he, he's the best black player we have or he's the best white player that we have. No. Yeah. You know, that's not how you look at it. And I remember there was a discussion that you and I had where, you know, you and I were both Houston Texans fans. Yeah. Now, if a black Houston Texan gets into a fight with, uh, let's say, a, a white Dallas Cowboy or a white New York 
giant or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Your average white Houstonian who's a Texan fan is not going to be rooting for the white player. Mm-hmm. He's going to be rooting for the black Texan. Yeah. Because that black Texan is a family, and we don't look at him as a black man. We look at him as family. Yeah, Texan. fellow Texan, yeah. And that's why, you know, I had a little bit of a problem with uh, the whole Colin Kaepernick thing because it brought division into a game where there, there was no racial division. Right. Yeah, so, uh, no, I agree. No. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the whole... As as we as we had said, or that, that I said, what sports like supersedes it it transcends race. I mean, you don't you focus on who's the best player, you know, who who who's going to help you win, and that is that's the that's what you want more than anything, and you want the you want the best for the job, you know, and. With that, it becomes a family. Then, then you build from there. You actually build relationship, and it's one of those things you don't judge a book a, a book by its cover. Um, it's you, you know, you base everything on, you know, the, the, as as Martin Luther King had said, on the content of someone's character. Um, Correct. And then uh, for sports, on the basis of, you know, how good are they? Uh, that's the that's right. the one you want. You want your you want the best player. And that should always be the case for everything, even outside of sports. You want the best on your team. Um, but, no, yeah, I, I agree. Um, you don't want to bring in de- a divisive spirit, uh, especially in something that that has sort of already conquered that, um, that mentality. Right. right, and football, in my opinion, has conquered the, the segregation issue. It has conquered... The, uh, the, uh, uh, the prejudice, the racial prejudice that, that went on in this country because we now, you know, we do, we do, look, at, uh, we do look at all these players not by the, the color of their skin but by what, what they have done. That, you know, like, like I said, they're, they're family. Yeah. You know, you see, like I, I, when I saw Calvin Murphy who played for the uh, Houston Rockets, I, I don't, when I met him, I didn't sit and say, you know, look at him as a black athlete. I looked at him as this guy was a legend in the Rockets. Yeah. Yeah, you stand now, in awe. This guy, this guy uh, Kenny uh, Washington. Now, you know, he he played for uh, what they they called uh, the Negro League, mm-hmm. um, the Pacific Coast Professional Football League. He played for the Hollywood Bears um, until the uh, the Cleveland Rams, which became the, the Los Angeles Rams. Until they took him, and he and he played he played for them, and uh, and I believe I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, that was a year before when he played for them in '46. That was uh, a year before Jackie Robinson played uh, baseball. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was yeah. it Jackie Robinson in '47? Yeah, Robinson was '47. Okay, well, he, okay. This guy, Kenny Washington, uh, he played for the Rams in 1946, a full year before uh, before Jackie Robinson. So. He he has been called the Jackie Robinson of football, but but Jackie Robinson is is, is far more well known than, than this guy. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he uh, he deserves a credit that uh, that I don't think he's been receiving. No, definitely not. Yeah. Is that it? Is that yours? Is that your first one? That's my 
All right, fantastic. Um, I'm going to do uh, a bit of a hodgepodge here. Um, I'm going off of the 19, 1936 Olympics uh, that were held in Berlin. Uh, that would be Hitler's Germany uh, and Hitler's Berlin uh, during that time. Uh, during this Olympic Games, we had 18 black athletes um, that were competing for America. Now, probably a lot of us don't know that that's how many black athletes were actually competing during those Olympics. We, we think of Jesse Owens, and then that's, that's about it. Um, but speaking of Jesse Owens, during the 100-meter uh, dash or 100-meter race, he, you know, Jesse Owens won first place. But second place, uh, the finish went to Ralph Metcalf. Um, and he was, um, he was black and he was a black American and little did I know, I uh, found out today, he later became a U.S. representative. So that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, but I did, I did want to take a moment to name all of the other athletes aside from Jesse Owens that were part of the 1936 Olympics team. Um, they are Dave Albritton, John Brooks, James Clark, Cornelius Johnson, Willis Johnson, Howell King, James Laval, Ralph Metcalf, as I mentioned a second ago, Art Oliver, Tidy Pickett, Fritz Pollard Jr., Mac Robinson, Luis Stokes, John Terry, Archie Williams, Jack Wilson, and John Woodruff. So, uh, all in all, they won eight gold medals. Now, four of those gold medals went to Jesse Owens. Um, and he actually is the one that I want to mention and talk about. But there is a bit of uh, what I want to mention is, well, I'll talk about it in a second. But Jesse Owens was a son of sharecroppers and the grandson of former slaves. Um, and so he had a rough upbringing. Um, he was, you know, he picked cotton as a, as a kid. Um, he grew up and then you know, became, you know, people started noticing, oh my God, this kid can flat out fly. Um, and when he went to the 1936 Olympics, you know, he won those four gold medals. He won the gold medal for the 100 meter, uh, the 200 meter, the long jump, and the four by 100 meter relay. Now there's some controversy that is about the four by 100 meter relay, but listeners, if you want to find that out uh, feel free to go ahead and research that on your own for time we're not gonna tackle that um, but one of the things that really s will stick out to you when you read about or, or or watch a documentary about the 1936 Olympics and Jesse Owens is the friendship that he made with Ludwig Luz Long um, the German long jumper uh, the friendship that they developed is is just it's beautiful Right. Um, because what was going on in Germany was Hitler wanted to host the Olympics to display the superiority of the Aryan race, um, the Aryan race over everybody else, how much more superior that they are than everyone. Um, and that really blew up in his face, like did, did not go well. Um, in fact, Jesse Owens was doing was dominating the Olympics so much that eventually the German crowd started chanting his last name. Um, so, really flips it on its head. But, 
this relationship that was developed between Owens and Luz um, extended, it started during the long jump competition. Um, during the long jump, during the, during the prelims, in order to get uh, into the final competition, you had three chances uh, to uh, do your jump and then qualify. The first two jumps that Jesse Owen did, he, he, he faulted on it. Uh, and so he had one more opportunity. And Luz went up to him and said, look, just pretend like the jump line this, where, you're, where you have to jump from is a foot before it actually is. And so you just jump and you know that you're going to, you're going to qualify. And so Owens actually took that advice, jumped, and qualified for, for the jump. Now, these two guys went and competed head-to-head uh, for the long jump. And obviously, Owens ended up winning. Now, this relationship, once, and, and Les won second, second place. So Owens, gold medalist, Les, silver medalist. And when it was all said and done, this was just one of the beautiful things that took place. Owens wins the long jump. Luz takes him hand in hand or arm in arm and they walk around the stadium. And it was just a, a, as they say, a show of solidarity. But more than that, it's a, it was a show of, of friendship. It was a show of, hey, it doesn't matter what you look like or where you come from. None of that matters. Um, and so World War II shows up. And Luz is actually in North Africa, and there's a there's a note. So Luz and Owens would write each other. They would stay in contact by mail, so they would write letters to each other. And I want to read the last letter from Luz to Owens. Um, and this is him writing from North Africa during World War II in, in, in the place where actually Luz was killed. Um, And he says, I am here, Jesse, where it seems there is only the dry sand and the wet blood. I do not fear so much for myself, my friend Jesse. I fear for my woman who is home and my young son, Carl, who has never really known his father. My heart tells me, if I be honest with you, that this is the last letter I shall ever write. If it is so, I ask you something. It is a something so very important to me. It is you go to Germany when this war done... Someday find my Carl and tell him about his father. Tell him, Jesse, what times were like when we not separated by war. I am saying, tell him how things can be between men on this earth. If you do this something for me, this thing that I need the most to know will be done. I do something for you now. I tell you something I know you want to hear and it is true. That hour in Berlin when I first spoke to you, when you had your knee upon the ground, I knew that you were in prayer. Then I not know how I know. Now I do. I know it is never by chance that we come together. I come to you that hour in 1936 for purpose more than Der Berliner Olympiad. And you, I believe, will read this letter while it should not be possible to reach you ever for purpose more even than our friendship. I believe this shall come about because I think now that God will make it come about. 
This is what I have to tell you, Jesse. I think I might believe in God. And I prayed to him that even while it should not be possible for this to reach you ever, these words I write will still be read by you. Your brother, Les. So, reading that letter just can really take you on, a, on an emotional ride. And so Jesse actually actually did what, what Les asked him to do. He went and met Carl, Les's son, spent time with him. In fact, so much time with him that he ended up being the best man in Carl's wedding, which is incredible. Uh, more about Jesse Owens um, as far as his, his legacy. He died in 1980, but in 1984, a street was at, in Berlin was actually named after him. Um, and he was posthumously awarded by President uh, George H.W. Bush, um, who awarded him the Congressional Medal of Honor and called his victories in Berlin, quote, an unrivaled athletic triumph, but more than that, a triumph for all humanity. That's my first one. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, I was at the uh, Smithsonian for the uh, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and they had a big thing on the 1936 Olympics. And um, it talked a lot about, you know, the, the whole Jesse Owens thing. The whole the his story and how much it just messed up, you know, Hitler's uh, plans. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Um, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. Did you know that in 10 years from 1964 to 1973, they won nine NCAA basketball championships? Is that the wooden years? That's the wooden years. In 10 years, they won nine victories. They, they won nine championships. Hmm. In 1966, which would have been their third year, there was one school that kept them from winning all 10. Uh, today it's known as the University of Texas El Paso, but back then it was called Texas Western. All right, big deal. Why are we bringing us up? Very easy. That team, that 1966 championship team, was the first all-black starting basketball team that won a championship. All five, all five starters were black players. And they defeated an all-white team from the University of Kentucky. So they won the national title 72-65, to 65, coached by uh, Don Haskins. Um, first time NCAA championship, all blacks. Um, they did not get a ladder to cut down the net. They were not invited to the uh, Ed Sullivan show, which was uh, normal for championship uh, teams so even as champions they did receive you know some segregate there, there was uh, they received uh, um, prejudice and, and racism was directed against them yeah. one good thing 
year, the Southeastern Conference decided, hey, you know what? We need to start having black basketball players, hmm. which they did the following year. The first uh, black, black basketball player started uh, playing for the Southeastern Conference. But uh, I got to meet one of those uh, one of those players. Uh, I, you know, for the life of me, I don't remember what his name was. This was uh, this was about twenty some years ago when I when I worked as a uh, waiter and as a bartender at Papacitos. Uh oh. Um, yeah, one of the uh, one of the one of the players was uh, actually selling orange flavored tequila, and uh, I got to meet him. So uh, we got to taste it, and but. Um, yeah, a fantastic story. Uh, they made uh, they made a movie. Um, they made a movie out of uh, out of it called the, uh, or a book and a film called Glory Road. It's about the uh, about that 1966 championship team, the Texas Western Miners, which again now known as the University of Texas El Paso. Utah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, pretty interesting story. Uh, I wish. Uh, I wish I was around to have seen it happen to, uh, yeah, happened a, a little over a year before I was born. But um, I have not seen Glory Road. I would like to see it. Yeah. I remember but, when it uh, came out. I didn't proud, I haven't watched proud, it. Proud achievement, and I think they really did open the door. They, they, they opened the doors for quite a lot of uh, basketball players, black basketball players, and it, it changed the game. Yeah. And speaking of like what you were saying is like as far as not getting uh, their just due post championship, you know, with the cutting down of the nets or going on the Ed Sullivan show, that was one of the things that Jesse Owens uh, had said that he's like, well, no, I uh, I didn't get to shake Adolf Hitler's hand, but I also didn't get to you know meet and shake my own president's hand. Um, he was not in, invited, obviously, uh, to the White House. He did not, he did not, he did not uh, meet FDR? No. Um, wow. And so that was one of the, the things that he, he was known for saying. is like, you know, nothing I can do about that. I can only try to, to help make things get better. Um, and the determination and the fortitude of, of just... Like what we talked about last week and then what we're talking about this week is just, listeners, if you can't get inspired um, by some of these stories, then uh, <laughs> I guess you're just hopeless. I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's so inspiring to where you're like, um, golly, you know, something bad happens to you. Like, think on think on all these stories that, that took place. Um so my, my next selection is uh, based on the book of what I what I had mentioned earlier. Um, this is Jack Johnson, the first uh, black heavyweight champion of the world. Um, he was actually born in Galveston, Texas. Um, he was known as the Galveston Giant, among many nicknames that he had. Uh, he was born in 1878, 14 years after the end of the Civil War. Uh, as mentioned Earlier, he was the first black heavyweight champion of the world after defeating Tommy Burns in 1908. Now, Tommy Burns uh, was the longtime heavyweight champion, or at least he had it for a few years, uh, but he kept avoiding Jack Johnson because, uh, I guess you could say avoiding the inevitable, uh, because 
after Jack Johnson followed him around the world, more or less, for two years, saying, hey, man, you need to you need to fight me. If you're not going to fight me in America, you need to fight me somewhere. Um, and so they finally decided on a fight uh, that took place close to Sydney, Australia. And the fight lasted 14 rounds. Now, you would think, man, the fight lasted 14 rounds. Must have been a close fight. Um, here's what Jack Johnson had to say about that. He said, I could have put him away quicker, but I wanted to punish him. I had my revenge. So <laughs> he, he beat, he really beat the crap out of, uh, Tommy Burns of, of which, you know, Jack Johnson more or less, uh, beat the crap out of pretty much everybody, uh, that he fought. Um, and when you read, if you ever read the book, Unforgivable Blackness, it goes into detail of how Jack Johnson would just sort of, you know, almost play with guys. Um, these are grown men. These are big guys. But he was just so much better uh, than than everyone else. Um, and interestingly enough, the, the Morning Telegraph, the, the New York newspaper, called Johnson um, after, after the, the Tommy Burns fight, champion face smasher of the world. And the paper went on to say that the color line question... Uh, because he, you know, he broke the color barrier. Uh, because you know, it was a big thing. Like, no, we're not going to have blacks fight whites. It's you know, it's degrading. It's you know, it's not right. And you know, they they can't compete. They can't. They can't do it. So, uh, the paper says the color line question is receiving an unusual amount of public attention. The color line was used in the most select pugilistic circles of subterfuge behind which a white man could hide to keep some husky-colored gentleman from knocking his block off and wiping up the canvas floor of a square circle with his remains. Uh, and that is the gist of, of what took place. Now, after he won in 1908 the championship, there was this mass hysteria, this mass search for the quote-unquote, and I'm sure you've heard this before, the Great White Hope. So they looked, they like, we got to find a white guy who can come in and set the record just straight and beat Jack Johnson. Uh, they were searching for people and everybody was like, oh, I'm not getting in the ring with that guy. Um, and they finally fell on Jim Jeffries. Now, Jim Jeffries was way out of his prime. He had been uh, the longtime heavyweight champion. I had avoided... The, the had avoided Jack Johnson um, and decided not to fight him in, in his younger years. Um, and so they had convinced him with the, like a big payday, I think of over $100,000, like, hey, you're going to be guaranteed $100,000. Just get in the ring and show him what's up, you know. And so they scheduled the fight, I believe, in San Francisco, July 4th, 1910. Just like the timing, I'm like, really july 4th uh, please anyways um obviously jack johnson defeated jim jeffries it wasn't even close um jim jeffries was just he was done um and with the great white hope idea uh surrounding that fight a Broadway play was actually made out of that um to which james earl jones uh of which we are big fans um, he actually played the role of Johnson. So this was a very successful Broadway play based on the whole idea of the Great White Hope search going on. Uh, that also became a movie called The Great White Hope. 
uh, with Jones also playing the starring role. But back to Jack Johnson. Uh, Jack Johnson was, he was an investor. He, he liked starting up businesses and he was successful in business and until like either the law or politicians would try to get in his way and, you know, shut things down, treat him extremely unfairly. Why? For a couple of reasons. One, because he was black and two, he liked white women, which did not go over very well during those days um, and for the foreseeable future from that from that point forward. But it did not go over well. Uh, he married. He married, and he married several women, uh, several white women. His first wife died, um, and he dated several white women. And so this really just irritated the the populace. Um, and so shortly after he had defeated Jim Jeffries, uh, the Mann Act was put into place. The Mann Act was a law created to stop the trafficking of women. It was actually done. Um, it was actually sort of created with, I don't want to say a, a like pure intent, um, but it was created to stop the trafficking of women um, for the purpose, or quote unquote, for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purposes. Uh, but the, the, the language of the bill was so vague that it was, it ended up turning into, okay, uh, this will help keep, um, blacks from marrying whites or, or, you know, anything like that or vice versa. Um, so he ended up violating the man act because his girlfriend Lucille at the time, uh, was with him and they crossed state lines and they were like, and then, uh, she was in love with him. Her mother was very angry about it. She was nuts. I mean, when you read about her, you could tell like, well, um, this lady's nuts out of her mind. And it reminded me of the quote, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Uh, hell also hath no fury like a mother-in-law scorned or your, <laughs> or your girlfriend's mother scorned. <laughs> you know what, I'm, I'm going to stay out of that one. <laughs> and so, Actually, I have, I, have a, I have a fine mother-in-law. So, <laughs> listening, I love you. <laughs> Yeah, you better make an amends there. Oh my gosh. So she ends up accusing Jack Johnson of kidnapping her daughter. And her daughter is like, no, I'm going to marry him. I love him, blah, blah, blah. And her mother and the police are like, no, she's out of her mind. That's lunacy. Um, but so they accuse him of this. The, the girl Lucille ends up marrying him. And so that case falls apart, but they find another woman uh, who is jealous of Lucille and Jack Johnson and is nuts out of her mind. So she accuses Jack Johnson of violating the Man Act. And so they have a court case, they convict Jack Johnson and the judge is, you know, he says, you know, because of who you are and the influence you have, a fine will not do. We're going to also add on a prison sentence, of which he was sentenced to prison for, I believe, one year and one day. Now, with that, he saw the BS in that, so he was like, hey, let's get out of here. So he went into exile and he left the country, him and Lucille. They left the country and he was in exile for seven years until he returned in 1920 and served his sentence. Now, during that time, he would 
you know, entertain uh, the guys in, in Leavenworth, uh, put on, you know, boxing clinics and, uh, you know, have, you know, people would come in, send in boxers or other people in Leavenworth would, would get in the boxing ring with him. Um, but it was just, it wasn't even so much that it was enough that the white populace was against him. And I'm not going to say all of them because not all of them were against him. There are plenty of white people who um, weren't, but uh, the majority in, in that time, I would probably estimate that. Yes, but not even just that, even Booker T. Washington disowned Jack Johnson. Um, a lot of people in the black community because of the, the trouble that he was making because he was so defiant. Um, a lot of the people in the black community, um, sort of, they disowned Jack Johnson, which had to cut even deeper than just, you know, white people doing that. Um, this past year, May 24th, President Trump actually issued a pardon, a full pardon for Jack Johnson. And I since, that. yes, I remember when that happened. And since reading, since having read that book a number of years ago, uh, probably about 10 years ago, I was always just so irritated and like this guy, he had this, you know, over him. Uh, he, the only thing that he did wrong was being his own man and being defiant to the Jim Crow laws uh, of those days. And it was sickening to know that it took so long for him to get this pardon. Um, but I had I wrote an article on my web my personal website DustinBass.me listeners if you ever want to check that out go ahead um, and I wrote a piece once in a couple of days after the pardon was was put forward for Jack Johnson and do you mind if I read a piece from my uh, article Alan? It gonna matter? Nope, I'm gonna read it anyways. Um, okay. So. This is, so I went to Galveston. So there is, there is a statue in Galveston of Jack Johnson. And when I went and there. And, and for our Houston listener, listeners, why don't you tell us? Do you, know, do you know where the statue is? If not, I can look it up. No, I know where it is. And I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. if you'll just let me. Okay. Here. All right. You have my, per, you have, you have my permission. All right. Please, Div, a divine please, permission. Please, please. The divine permission has been granted. So this is this is what I wrote. There's a statue of Jack Johnson in Galveston. Last summer, I went to go see it. I can't express how disappointed I was at the statue and its placement. It nearly brought me to tears. For a man who lived his life big, bold, and out in the open, to have his commemorative statue so small and tucked behind the old Central Cultural Center doesn't fit him or his historical significance. With a hint of irony, the statue itself, erected in 2012, took almost as long as the pardon. He is one of the most important black figures from a sports and social perspective, yet is hardly known. As Jack Johnson once said, there ain't gonna be but one Jack Johnson. We would be wise to remember that. I personally believe the statue should be moved to a more prominent space, perhaps on the seawall, or in the middle of Galveston's The Strand. Too many people have no idea who Jack Johnson was and placing him in a quiet corner where nary a soul ventures doesn't do him justice. Maybe this pardon will get him moved to a more prominent location. 
So readers, uh, I mean readers, listeners, uh, if you want to learn more about Jack Johnson, go check out Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson by Jeffrey Ward. Or if you don't really like reading, Ken Burns turned that biography into a documentary. All right. All yours, Alan. Hmm. Okay. Well, the next one, we will, uh, let's talk about O.J. Simpson. Hey, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> you must acquit. <laughs> let's see. Uh, well, let's see. Born in San Francisco, he was the, uh, he was the son of a well-known drag queen who died of AIDS. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about O.J. Simpson before the whole Nicole Brown Simpson saga. I have no idea. He was he was the son of a drag queen. Yep, his uh, father was a well-known drag queen in San Francisco, Jimmy Simpson. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Who would have thought? For real. Such, a, such an athlete like that. But, O.J. Simpson, now, why was he, why were people so shocked when he was arrested? I'll tell you why. Because everybody loved O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson was just a phenomenal football player. He won the Heisman Trophy winner in uh, 1968, playing for the University of Southern California. Uh, played for the uh, Buffalo Bills. Uh, for about, I think, what, 11 years? And then his last two years played for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, back in those days, it was only a 14-game uh, schedule, and he was able to break the 2,000-yard uh, record. Kind of hard to do with only 14 games. It's yeah. easier now when you have two more games on your uh, schedule. But, but uh, you know, uh, here's what I'm going to say about OJ. And, you know, like I said, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to take away what happened to him uh, from the, uh, from the murder and the trial, but, but I'm here to talk about what he did prior to it. O.J. Simpson was a much beloved character. He not only was a spectacular football player, but he got into the world of acting. Not only did he do Hertz commercials, but, you know, he was in movies like The Towering Inferno, uh, Capricorn One. And the uh, the Naked Gun series. He was a lovable guy, and the American people embraced him. And lo and behold, he was a black football player. But nobody cared. Everybody loved O.J. Simpson. And you know when when the uh, the Nicole Brown murders came about, and it looked more and more like he did it. People kept saying, "Say it ain't so." Please, O.J., say it ain't so. This guy, O.J., in my opinion, he proved that, you know, in time, the the racial segregationists, the, 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 the prejudiced people are going to be slowly phased out of this country, taken over by people who were colorblind, who, who looked at any athlete as... Or, or any person in general, but in this case, since we're talking about athletes, mm-hmm. um, you know, the athletics was athletics was what, in my opinion, brought much of this country together, where nobody cared what your color was. And OJ was uh, the embodiment of of that colorblind um, view, where 
nobody cared what color you were. Um, he, he played uh, with a Nordberg, I think, in the Naked Gun series. And, uh, you know, I mean, what can you say about OJ? Everybody loved the guy. You say Norberg, or you mean Leslie Nielsen? No, no, no. I, the character he played was. Oh, Norberg. okay, okay. Yeah. So, and, and I remember watching him in Capricorn One when I was a kid. Uh, for me, it was a big deal because uh, the setting was in the city of Houston, and um, it, it was cool to you know, having lived in Houston even back in the seventies, watching a movie where where so much so much of it took place. Uh, uh, in our city, turns out that they didn't film it in Houston. It was filmed in LA, but they said it was uh, they said it was Houston. But uh, and then you know, the Towering Inferno. That was one of my favorite movies. Earthquake and Towering Inferno came out around the same time. But um, but you know, as as a kid, we we uh, we played football um, in elementary school, and we would say, "I'm OJ Simpson." You know, I, you know, back in the seventies, um, you know, the schools that I went to in the old, back then, Aldine was mostly white kids. So you had all these white kids who all wanted to be O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. That's who they remembered. And um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to sit and say that he broke some kind of a barrier because you know we also had Jim Brown. Um, yeah, he he played uh, he played in movies also mm-hmm. uh, the dirty Do- the dirty dozen yeah um, with Lee Marvin with Lee Marvin who we mentioned last and week we mentioned Lewis. him last week uh, Lee Marvin is uh, buried not too far from Joe Lewis and uh, you know he was also in this in you know Jim Brown was in another movie one of my favorite movies that is not very well known it's called Dark of the Sun about uh, these mercenaries who fight in the Congo. Yeah. But, you know, um, but O.J. and Jim Brown, you know, people like them really, really broke the color barrier where where people just, I don't care what color he is. I love O.J. Simpson. Yeah. It's yeah. too bad. It's too bad what happened to him. But, um, but I, I like to remember the good memories of him prior to the... Um, the Nicole Brown Simpson murders. Yeah. And speaking of Jim Brown, on that note, I remember as as a kid, my grandfather talking about Jim Brown, and just he was he was fans of really two athletes. I mean, major fans of two athletes. One prom- prominently Muhammad Ali, but really number two was Jim Brown. And he would always talk about watching Jim Brown play football and how he would just destroy guys and just run right over them. But whenever they got him down, it usually took several guys to bring him down, said he would always get up real slow. Everybody else would be up, but he would, you know, and it was always the same. He'd just take his time getting up and get right back <laughs> get right back in line. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, those were my first memories of hearing about Jim Brown. All right, man, is that you? Is that you that for, okay. Here's my third and, and final one. Uh, Marshall Major Taylor. Um, and to an extent, there has been a resurgence uh, of, about Major Taylor, uh, which we'll, I'll mention later. Uh, Major Taylor was the son of Gilbert Taylor, who was a Civil War veteran. Now, uh, he grew up in a Christian home, and he was known for always carrying his Bible with him. 
Um, and while reading uh, a bit about him, I didn't know this, but you know, with with the with the bicycle coming out, it was competing against horse riders. It was competing for for space in the in the city uh, with horses. So there was a lot of malice actually uh, between horse riders and bike riders, and they actually ended up having to make uh, laws to protect uh, cyclists uh, from horse riders because um, horse. People on horses would get so irritated with these bicyclists that a lot of times they would try to run them down and often would run them down <laughs> with their horses. And so a lot of these bike riders uh, would have little pistols, almost like water pistols with diluted ammonia to, to spray on uh, these horses or these dogs uh, that would be chasing after them. Uh, so pretty interesting. But anyways, Major Taylor was a cyclist. Um and his one of his 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 first big moment was uh, at Madison Square Garden, um, and it was called the Six Day Race. Um, and it was literally, dude, six days of racing, like nonstop. Um, and there were 28, 28 cyclists uh, competing, and this was his first professional race. He was 18 years old, um, and he had he had he had run across uh, somebody who who recognized. Oh my gosh, this kid is really fast on on his bicycle, um, and so he got he got into this six day race at 18 years old. He was the only black uh, person in the in the race uh, among the 28, uh, and he was about 10 years younger than everyone else. And one of, the, one of the quotes that sort of stood out to me was, uh, he said, After 18 straight hours, I managed to stick to my will. My greatest difficulty was staying awake. Now, this is six days of just going. And, dude, can you imagine being on a bicycle, flying around at like 40 miles per hour, which was faster than uh, which was faster than cars could go at the time. Uh, Forty miles per hour on a track that was about 0.1 miles long, um, and going at it for six days straight, it was insane. By day two, he had gone 398 miles. By day three, 684. Four, 986. By day five, um, 1,269 miles. By day five, half the riders had had just quit. Uh, so there are about 14 left. And on day six, uh, he had reached 1,524. He had finished the race at 1,732 miles, which is about the distance from New York City to here. Um, and he finished eighth. He finished eighth place. He didn't win, but nobody thought that he was going to be able to finish. Um and a lot of people thought that he may not live to race again because that's how hard that race was on just on just the human body and and on him. It was his first one, you know. And he it it, it talks about how he you know well not just him but this this was something that was very common uh, for cyclists during those days because this was obvious it was just a huge sport back in those days is is cycling on those on those tracks uh, where. They would say, you know, uh, there were times there were like 50,000 people that would show up to watch. Um, 
And a lot of people thought maybe he's, he's, he won't live to race again. Uh, three years later, he was the sprint world champion. And he went on to set seven cycling world records. In fact, not only uh, did he become the sprint world champion, but he was the first ever black world champion. And oh, wow. s- yeah. Um, and so speaking of the resurgence of Major Taylor... Uh, you may have seen this commercial by Hennessy. It's a really good commercial. Um, and uh, Nas, the, the rapper, Nas or Nas, I don't know how you say it. Uh, the rapper does the narration for these commercials for Hennessy. Um, the 90-second commercial has no narration. The The cinematography, they, they I'm telling you, man, Listeners, go watch this, the 90-second piece. And like all of all the 15 and the 30-second are great. But go watch the 90-second commercial. It is beautifully done. And it is so wonderful. Um, but it is a little interesting that Hennessy has created this resurgence for Major Taylor. And Taylor was a very devout Christian. And he never drank. Um, and so... I just thought that was pretty interesting, but kind of like in Sears, Sam Malone uh, ran a bar, but uh, he didn't drink. No, yeah. come on, it's Sears. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is that I thought you said Sears, like S H. No, no, Sears, the bar in Boston. Right, I got you. Which, Everybody which, knows your which name. I, I got to visit when I was there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you had a drink on me. Hey, so in 1932 in Chicago, Major Taylor passes away and he dies penniless. Um, and and so you you know you see all the things that he had he had done, and I, I encourage people to to read up on on Major Taylor. Um, but I I got this from an article by Outside Magazine. It says he might have been forgotten entirely. But 15 years after Taylor's death, a group of 19th century cyclists and Schwinn Bicycle Company chief Frank Schwinn paid to get him a proper funeral service and burial site, including a bronze memorial plaque dedicated to the, quote, world's champion bicycle racer who came up the hard way without hatred in his heart. Um, And you can read a number of Art, uh, biographies about him, one of them called Major, um, and there's a ESPN documentary that is sort of based off of that book, Major, um, and that was Hennessy helped sponsor that documentary with ESPN. Um, but Major Taylor actually wrote his own biography in 1928. Unfortunately, uh, when he started trying to sell it we were at the height of the depression, the great depression, which, um, you know, he wasn't able to get a lot of sales, but his autobiography is called fastest bicycle rider in the world. The story of a colored boy's indomitable courage and success against great odds. So this, this is definitely one. Um, and I think I am very thankful that Hennessy, um, has decided to really, create a resurgence for major Taylor because what a, what a worthy man. Um, and just, just a, just a beautiful person. 
so yeah, sounds like it. You said nineteen thirty-two Chicago, right? Yes, sir. Isn't that when uh, Al Capone was uh, running things? I I uh, I assume uh, that would probably be about around the area uh, or around yeah. the time, but I know it's definitely the area. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's when uh, old uh, Capone ran the city. Yeah. So, um, Alan, you got anything else? Otherwise, we're going to end on a scripture because we are definitely out of time. We're closing in on an hour and 15 minutes. It's been a wonderful conversation. Now, let's, uh, let's hear that scripture. I'd love to hear. All right. This one is extremely fitting for what we've been talking about. This comes from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. And it says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So ladies and gentlemen, if, if this is what this is saying, like the, the racial barriers have, have been, have been broken. The, we have to follow the good people of, of America who have gone before us, who have said, you know what, what matters is your character. What matters is how you hold yourself. Um, hold yourself up in, in, with your family, how you take care of your family, um, how you take care of yourself, and how you treat others. That's what's, that's what's important. And we are all striving for the prize, um, the eternal prize. And that's one of the things that Major Taylor uh, actually said too, uh, that, hey, it's not about what I'm doing here on earth. What matters most is eternity. Um, and I hope that we move on throughout the rest of this week and throughout the rest of 2019 with that in mind, that we are running for the prize. And that we want to be a true melting pot where we all, blacks, whites, Jews, Gentiles, we all can sit together at the table and be together as one. Yeah. Yes, indeed. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our episode for the Sons of History. Alan, where can everyone find us? Well, you have Facebook, you have Twitter, you have Instagram, and you have... Help me out on that last one. Did you say, did you say YouTube? <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. YouTube, YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> And we also have our own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. That's right. And speaking of thesonsofhistory.com, go check it out. We have our brand new episode, episode two on the Declaration of Independence. I am playing the part of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Alan is playing the part of who? John Adams. John Adams. All right. The second president of the United States, first vice president, and the very first ambassador to the court of St. James. <laughs> you love that. 
ambassador to St. James. Oh, yeah. I think they called it a minister back then. Well. I don't think, I don't think the term ambassador was used at that time. Well, we'll use it nonetheless. Let everybody know what's going on. Um, yeah, so go check that out. Also, ladies and gentlemen, go check out um, not just on our homepage, but go check out our military interviews section, of which we have our interview with Tuskegee Airman Colonel Charles McGee. Beautiful interview conducted by our good friend Alan Joachim, um, and it's definitely one you don't want to miss. So... We bid you adieu, ladies and gentlemen. This has been the Sons of History podcast. And if you haven't, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast and let your friends and family know about it. Thank you and God bless. Hey.